Please stand for the reading of the Old Testament, which for this Lord's Day is taken from Job 42, verses 7 through 17. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice them as a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bilbad the Shuhite, Zophar the Nematite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone he had known before came and ate with him at his house. They comforted and consoled him over his trouble. The Lord had brought upon him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemiah, the second, Kaziah, the third, Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted him an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this Lord's Day is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. 
We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. The book of Job is certainly well known for its happy ending. As we come to the final chapter of this great book, Job's trial by ordeal blessedly now comes to an end. And Job's good name, his great wealth, and his loving family are restored to him. Job has successfully endured an intense and very difficult period of suffering without cursing God or without blaming God for all of his horrible troubles. Satan has been proven wrong in his attack upon the foundation of the gospel, which are the righteous ways of God, and that attack has utterly failed. And although Job is a justified sinner, Job is Yahweh's blameless and upright servant after all. Job is not the self-centered opportunist who obeyed God so that he would prosper as Satan had falsely charged. And once everything Job had was taken away, still Job refused to curse God to his face as Satan had predicted. And so having successfully graduated from the school of suffering and then being personally instructed by the Creator Himself about the nature of true wisdom, Job's ordeal blessedly and finally comes to an end. The Lord restores to Job all of the things he has lost and then some. God is indeed faithful to all of His covenant promises. His ways are proven right and just. And his word alone is that place where true wisdom is found. Now, as we come to the end of the book of Job, obviously there is much for us to consider. This morning we will concentrate on that final chapter, the epilogue to the book of Job, verses 7 through 17 of chapter 42, in which we read of how God fulfills his promise to his servant by restoring to, those, to him all those things he has lost during this trial by ordeal. And then next week, Lord willing, we will try and tie up a number of the theological loose ends raised throughout the story of Job, including that difficult topic of the suffering of the righteous. As we have seen during this series, the key point of application again and again is simply this. How are we to relate the story of Job to our own particular situation should the Lord choose to bring suffering into our own lives? And having gone through this great and glorious story, that obviously requires a bit of explanation, something we will tackle next week. For in many ways, as many of you have told me, the book of Job creates a number of theological loose ends, and it'd be a good idea to try and summarize them and tie them together next week. Now, as we saw last time, it was an act of sheer grace when the Lord spoke to Job from the midst of the great storm. Job was sick with a fever. He was suffering from sores all over his body and thinking he was about to die. Job nearly crossed the line when he demanded that Yahweh issue to him a written indictment and that he treat Job like a prince. It is simply amazing that God does not come to Job from the storm in judgment and confront Job with a list of his many sins. God doesn't answer any of Job's specific questions about why all this had come to pass, nor does God deal with Job as Job has demanded. And yet, 
after the Lord has appeared to Job from the midst of the storm and spoken to him about the nature of true wisdom, which could be seen in all that God has made, Job now knows that everything will be okay. Despite his circumstances, Job is completely reassured. Job knows that his Creator and Redeemer is not angry with him, even though Job has complained of being abandoned. And throughout the course of the dialogue with his friends, Job has repeatedly wondered out loud whether or not God is being just in his dealings with Job. No, the appearance of God to Job from the storm is an act of grace. And it begins, this summing up of the story, it begins to bring this ordeal to an end. Now after losing all his children and all his possessions and his good name, we witness poor Job going from this humble affirmation of faith as recorded in Job 1, 20 through 21, the verse we began with almost, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We've gone from that to that heartfelt lament of Job chapter 3, when Job says, May the day of my birth perish. Would it be better had I never been born? And then we listened in as Job was on the receiving end of sincere but cruel counsel from his three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, who accused Job of having sinned because they completely misunderstood this principle of divine retribution. Now, in their minds, it's just a matter of a simple syllogism that explains Job's troubles. God must punish all sin. That's true. Job is horribly suffering. That's true. Therefore, Job must have sinned. That's false. And since it's self-evident that the righteous suffer and that the wicked prosper, Job is very easily able to silence his three friends whose faulty understanding of God's justice prevented them from seeing the obvious. Yes, God must punish all sin, but not necessarily in this life and not necessarily in the ways we expect. Despite the loss of everything, including his good name, and despite his horrible physical condition, his fever and the open sores, Job refuses to curse God. And yet this increasingly heated and intense dialogue between Job and his friends has brought about a dramatic change in Job. And while well within his rights to defend his honor against the cruel and false charges of his three friends that he had committed a whole list of secret sins, Job slowly but surely lost perspective on his own situation. And that's the difficulty all sufferers face as sickness and fever and lack of strength rob them of their endurance and their clarity of thought. And so it's not long before Job feared that God had abandoned him or was treating him unjustly. And the efforts of his friends to comfort him only made everything worse. But knowing that he had done nothing to bring down the covenant curses upon his head as his friends and had falsely charged, Job became increasingly demanding as he sought to be vindicated of this falsehood. In fact, by the time we come to Job's final speech in chapters 29 through 31, Job is now demanding that God answer him on his own terms and that Job be treated like a prince. And so Job nearly crosses the line. But before Job goes too far, a certain Elihu, a young man who's been listening to the debate from the beginning, he now can take no more and jumps into the middle of the fray. And while reminding Job's three friends of how completely they have failed in their attempts to deal with Job's situation, more importantly, 
Elihu's speech points out to Job that he has gone way too far in seeking to justify himself rather than God. And therefore, Elihu's speech serves as the means by which the way is prepared for the Lord to come and speak to Job from the midst of the whirlwind. It is Elihu speaking as a prophet who reminds Job and his friends that true wisdom doesn't necessarily come from advanced age or personal experience or even from careful observation. True wisdom must be revealed to us by God, and that's exactly what happens beginning in Job 38. When the Lord speaks to Job, as recorded in that amazing set of chapters 38 through 41, it is Job who's challenged twice to brace himself like a man. And as I mentioned last time, this is an athletic image drawn from the ancient world in which the goal is to best one's opponent by else removing their belt from them or twisting their belt so that they are utterly and totally incapacitated by it. Not surprisingly, it's Job who is very quickly subdued and who loses the contest with his creator, redeemer, over the nature of true wisdom. Speaking as the interpreter of his own work of creation, Yahweh reminds Job that his wisdom is openly displayed in the heavens and on the earth and in the creatures who populate both. It is God who hangs the stars in space. It is God who separates day from night. It is God who controls the seas and their limits. It is God who directs the storm. It is God who sends forth lightning and rain and snow. And where was Job when God did all these wonderful things? Job was nowhere to be seen. Job is but a mere man bound both by time and by space. And therefore, when God directs Job to consider the creatures of the earth, the eagle and the horse and the ox, the behemoth, the hippo, the leviathan, the crocodile, Job is confronted with the fact that he as a mere man is no match for any of them. Yet the Lord directs their every move and controls their every activity. And so in Job chapter 40, verses 8 through 9, Yahweh asked Job, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Beloved, how can Job, the creature, demand anything from God, the Creator? Why would Job even entertain the thought of justifying himself rather than justifying God? Job's suffering, despite all the difficulties it raises, does not give Job the right to question God's justice. And when Job is finally confronted then with the greatness of God, two things change dramatically. On the one hand, Job is immediately and completely humbled. Job has gone from demanding to be treated like a prince to repenting in dust and ashes. Notice, too, that Job is not consumed by God's holiness. Nor does God belittle Job, nor does God mock Job. But God does put Job in his place. Indeed, no one can be said to possess true wisdom unless they understand the distinction between the creature and the Creator. And once God speaks to Job from the midst of the storm, the Creator-Creature distinction is something that Job of all men now begins to understand. When God speaks, Job must listen. Here is the wisdom that Job has been seeking all along 
For unlike Job, God is neither bound by time or space, nor are his ways subject to human approval. The scripture tells us in Psalm 115 verse 3 that God does whatever pleases him. And therefore his ways are always holy. His ways are always righteous. His ways are always good, even if we do not understand, nor necessarily even like the ways of the Lord. And yet, on the other hand, the very fact that God condescended to speak to Job immediately puts Job's suffering into its proper perspective. Clearly, Job is not being punished because of some particular sin that he has committed. But at no time does God ever reveal to Job the reason why he's suffering. At no point does Yahweh answer Job's list of demands or questions. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. No one can fathom him. But when Job is directed to the holiness and justice of God as seen in the glories of the natural order, Job realizes that his list of questions are absolutely futile and that God has been with him all alone in the midst of his ordeal. God has not in any sense abandoned Job. In fact, it was sinful of Job to even think such a thing. And this despite the fact that God never answers any of Job's questions, nor does God give to Job an explanation as to why he's suffering. In fact, once God speaks to Job, none of that stuff even matters anymore. For having gained true wisdom, Job knows that God is good and that all of God's ways are just, and therefore who is Job to even ask those questions? And so as we come to the end of Job's ordeal, we need to notice Job's reaction to God's appearance. Job is painfully aware now of his great sinfulness. And so as we read in Job 42, verses 1 through 6, Then the Lord replied to Job, and Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. No longer is Job going to seek to justify himself rather than God. Only God can vindicate his ways because God alone is without sin. And at the end of the day, what's left for Job to say? All Job can do is once he realizes the greatness of his sins is to despise himself and to repent. Now in the specific terms of the trial by ordeal, in which Satan had contended that once stripped of his wealth and his family and his health, Job would curse God to his face. Job has done nothing wrong to bring about his own suffering and the loss of all of his possessions. But Job has become increasingly defiant as he has sought his own vindication before his friends. But again, who is Job to question God? Who is Job to demand anything from God, especially when God in his grace mercifully condescends to speak to Job? and reminds Job graciously that he has never left Job's side. And all of this occurs, remember, before Job is actually restored. Surely this is intended to remind us that Job is a justified sinner. He's justified before God. He believes in the God of the promise. And as a fruit of his faith, he is that blameless and upright servant about whom it can be truly said, there's no one else like him on the earth. 
More importantly, it means that at the end, Job has prevailed in the trial. Job has bested Satan. Job's ordeal is now over. And thus, when Job repents of his sin, the dialogue is completed, and it's in the epilogue. The final chapter, Job 42, verses 7 to 9 and following, we finally learn the glorious outcome to the story. And it is a happy ending indeed. Now in Job 42, verses 7 through 9, Job receives gloriously that vindication he's been seeking all along. God is going to restore his good name among his friends and by implication among all the citizens of Uz, the land where Job lived and was so well known. And so as we read the amazing account of Job's vindication and restoration, we need to notice the fact that this process takes the reverse order from which these things were originally lost. The first and probably most important thing restored to Job is his good name and his reputation among his friends. And it's only after his good name and his reputation is regained that his family and wealth are restored to him as well. In fact, I don't know about you, but I almost want to cheer when I read the words of verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Finally, vindication. Not only does this mean that Job has spoken correctly about God in the sense of not blaming God for his trial, it also means that Job's three friends are confronted with their cruel and thoughtless behavior toward their suffering friends. And their folly is evident. These guys never once entertain the thought that they might be wrong about God's justice and therefore that they need to repent. And despite that folly, God is being gracious to them as well as to Job. They too will be forgiven. And so when Job confesses his sins and performs this humble act of repentance, it appears, if you go back to the beginning of the story, that Job is finally doing what his friends told him to do all along. Job, confess your sins and then God will restore you. But be careful to notice that Job is not repenting of sins he did not commit. Sins which his friends accused him of doing. Rather, Job is repenting of those sins he did commit once the ordeal began, namely those sins associated with trying to justify himself rather than God. And so at the very end of the story, the verdict is clear. It's Job's three friends who have spoken incorrectly and accused Job heartlessly of things he did not do. And they too now need to repent in order to be restored. Now, God's gracious remedy to this matter is spelled out in verses 8 and 9. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Beloved Job is now to serve amazingly as the mediator on behalf of his three friends, making a burnt offering sufficient to cover the guilt of all their sins because of Job's prayer on their behalf. And by acting as a mediator for his friends, God will now miraculously effect reconciliation. 
Job will not only be able to forgive his friends for what they've done, but Job is vindicated in their eyes as well so that the friendship can be restored. When Job is chosen to be the one to pray for them, another great and grand principle of redemptive history is brought out into the open. Because as we read elsewhere in Proverbs 15, it is the prayer of a righteous man that turns aside God's anger. And a clear example of this, and yet additional proof that Job lived in the time of the patriarchs, is found in Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 and following, when it's Abraham who prays for the deliverance of Sodom. Now since Job is that one chosen to offer sacrifices on behalf of the group, Job is not only vindicated in the eyes of his friends, but Yahweh pointedly speaks of Job as my servant. And this is covenantal language. And it confirms Job's victory over Satan in this trial by ordeal is finalized. Through the offerings of these burnt sacrifices, Yahweh is reconciled to sinners. Sinners are reconciled to Yahweh. And all four sinners, Job and his three friends, are now reconciled to each other. This means at the end of the story, the foundation of the gospel is still intact. God is just and righteous in all his dealings with his creatures, despite all the plotting and scheming by Satan to undermine this principle through Satan's attack upon God's righteous servant, Job. Job doesn't need to vindicate himself anymore because Job has been vindicated by God, not guilty. And Satan has shown to be a liar who hates all righteousness and who hates especially the righteous servants of the Lord. And more importantly, at the end of the story, God has vindicated himself. His ways are always right and just. And so while Job did not serve God so that he might prosper materially as Satan had charged, nevertheless, God's creation is good. And the blessing promised to God's people that the meek might inherit the earth comes to full flower in the life of Job. And so as the story comes to the final chapter, it begins with Job still clothed in dirt and ashes. He's sick. He has nothing left of his great wealth or happiness but all of that is about to change. While we have learned throughout the book of Job that there is no direct connection whatsoever between someone's piety and their corresponding prosperity, nevertheless, God now rewards Job for his faithfulness. And God does this not because Job deserves anything from the hand of God. Job is and remains a justified sinner, but God does this because he's gracious He's gracious to his servant, and God always keeps his promises made to us in his word. And so the final turning point in the story now comes in verse 10, when we read that after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Now it's only when Job assumes his mediatorial office on behalf of his friends that restoration finally comes and more importantly we're pointed ahead in redemptive history to the glorious coming messianic age and God's promise that in that messianic age his people will all receive a double portion a double blessing in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 7 we read this glorious messianic prophecy instead of their shame my people will receive a double portion and instead of disgrace they will rejoice in their inheritance 
And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Now at this early point in redemptive history in the story of Job, the material blessings given to Job are but a type and shadow of heavenly blessings that are so much greater that we have difficulty even conceiving of them. We understand what it means for someone in Job's time to possess large tracts of land, to have large herds of cattle, to possess much gold and silver. But this side of the dawn of the age to come, we cannot begin to understand the heavenly blessings which await all of us in heaven. And so the material blessings given to God's people in this life are intended to illustrate spiritual blessings that we cannot see. And while Job receives his double portion, pointing us ahead to the spiritual blessings of the Messianic age, we must be clear that the material blessings given to Job are not an end in themselves. And that's what Satan mistakenly thought. Satan thought this was all about Job's goodies, but it's not. Now, these material blessings should point us ahead to something much greater, and that's the principle set forth in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, our New Testament lesson this morning. And listen to what Peter says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Unlike all of Job's great possessions which were taken from him and then blessedly replaced. These things, says Peter, are kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice that our ultimate inheritance is heavenly. It's yet to be revealed to us. And in the meantime, we must wait and we must struggle. But we will, like Job, receive our inheritance without fail. Why? Because God has promised as much. Now Peter goes on to remind us, in this, in this suffering, you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, and in that Job serves as a wonderful example to us. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Job's restoration, beloved, is important because it not only serves as the public sign of God's vindication of his suffering servant, but it's a glorious reminder that God keeps his promises. But Job's restoration cannot match that wonderful heavenly inheritance that all of God's people will receive. An inheritance, the very thought of which Peter declares, fills us with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And so the restoration of Job's great wealth points Job too, as well as all of us, ahead to our heavenly inheritance. And yet as we come back to the book of Job, it's very, very important that Job be restored in its own right to demonstrate God's faithfulness as we see 
as the story concludes in verses 11 to 17. As the story comes to an end, we read, All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him, known him before, came and ate with him in his house. Remember, Job had been sitting out on the town dunghill, scraping himself with pot shirts, uh, so grossed out that no one wanted anything to do with him. And they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Now, no doubt, the restoration of Job's relationships with extended family and lifelong friends is the sure sign that Job has been vindicated and that his good name has been restored to him. And his reputation now is at least as great as it was before the ordeal began. But no restoration would be complete without Job receiving the consolation and comfort from his friends and his family. Now, the gifts that are given to Job probably are an indication of the recognition of the honor due to Job once people learned that his ordeal did not stem from some secret sin and once that Job was victorious in this ordeal. And while nothing you notice here is said anywhere of Job's healing, we do read that his friends and his family now comforted him. And that indicates a time of healing and a time of convalescence are now ongoing for Job. And yes, indeed, he does recover and live a long life. Now, that double portion promised to God's people can be seen beginning in verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Now, that, of course, contrasts to the 7,000 sheep, the 3,000 camels, the 500 oxen, donkeys that Job had before this trial by ordeal suddenly become upon him, suddenly came upon him. And I think it's safe to assume that Job now sees his wealth in a new sense with far greater appreciation. Now, the same glorious restoration holds true for Job's family. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapak. Nowhere in the land were found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now it's interesting, and most commentators catch this, that Job's daughters are named here while his sons are not. It may be the fact that Job assigns them a share of his inheritance along with the brothers was a very remarkable thing to do given the attitude toward women throughout the ancient world. And this not only implies that Job's family life was at least as happy afterwards as it was before his children were taken from him, but Job also, we know, has a renewed hope that his deceased children are members of the covenant and will be raised with him at the end of the age. Recall that Job has already boldly confessed his belief in the bodily resurrection at the end of the age and in the fact that the Redeemer himself would stand on the earth and Job would see his Redeemer with his own eyes. Now the fact that Job lived such a long and full life after suffering so much is clearly a sign that Job lives in the age of the patriarchs where long life, it is said, is characteristic of men of faith. And so as God pours out his gifts on Job as gestures of God's amazing grace and not as a reward for certain virtues manifest in the life of Job, all of this we read is done out in the open. Why? So that Job's vindication and his reconciliation to God and his friends is not hidden. Everyone knows, everyone sees that Job has a good name, that he is blameless and upright, 
that he has not sinned and that God keeps his promises. And so the book of Job ends with these wonderful and yet simple words. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. What do you say in response to such a great ending to the story? Well, I think the words of Job uh, earlier in the book are very fitting. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a great end to a great story. Amen.